Hi, and welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie, and the two weeks have gone around the calendar, which means it's time to talk about what we've been reading. And there's been so much. You get to start today. Well, I've got a few things, probably not as many as you, but... Uh, it is not a competition. No, it's it's not a competition because... We go through this, I feel like, at least once a month, where you start feeling insecure because you think you haven't read enough books, not to tell you it's not a competition, <laughs> then you say that you know it's not because I'm winning. So just stop and talk about your books. So at, at one point, okay, I do occasionally put my books into Goodreads as a way to track how many books I have read. I don't do it very often. Um, so a few weeks back, since the last episode, I guess, I was doing this, and I, I immediately texted Julie and was like, hey, I've, I've got to count. She's like, how many? So, of course, I said some number that was absurd just to see if it would freak her out, and she says it didn't freak her out, but I like to think it that was... for one second she was like, how is he seven books ahead of me when I'm like 17 behind? It was too high. You just overshot yourself. I'll overshoot you. I don't know what that even means. <laughs> Good gracious. Anyhow, anyhow, uh, things to read, things to talk about. Um, the first thing that I admit in my nerd frenzy is that I discovered archive.org, which has over 5 million books you can read on your portable reading device. And like the great nerd that I am, I immediately delved into two 40-year-old books about bootleg recordings from Bob Dylan and the Beatles. So, If there has ever been any more quintessential Joe reading, I don't know what it would be. <laughs> well, it was You Can't Do That, Beatles, Bootlegs, and Novelty Records, 1963-80, to 80, by Charles Reinhardt. And the other is Bob Dylan, His Unreleased Recordings, by Paul Cable. I had read the Paul Cable book because, oddly, Western Kentucky University, my alma mater, had a copy. So I read it when I was, like, 19, and I read it again. And uh, these were both fun for me just because, again, this is one of my nerd hobbies, and it's interesting to see how much more we know about these artists and their work than people knew 40 years ago. Why did Western have a copy of that? That's a weird thing for it to have a copy of. Well, it's a very important book. <laughs> no, I, I just, I'm picturing all the people who must have been up there on a Saturday afternoon at the copy machine with their nickels trying to make sure they copied everything they needed from this book. <laughs> I'm going to say, I think in those days they still had cards. They don't really have, you know, like library cards now, but I bet when they pulled the card on the Paul Cable book, it was like Joe Cox, Joe Cox, Joe Cox, <laughs> Fred Smith, Joe Cox, Joe Cox, Joe Cox. <laughs> but anyway, I enjoyed them both. I mean, they're both dated, but this is one of the fun things in archive.org is you can read 40-year-old books and be like, man, that, that was a while ago. So anyway. I know you have been really excited about this. Um, the, these are not the only books you've been looking at in there. No, I've got a 1986 basketball book that similarly I told Ryan about, and he was very intrigued to see what sort of foolish things we were talking about then. And so, you know, just stuff like that. Anyway, 5-point-odd million free books. So check it out, archive.org. They have lots of other things. They have old-time radio shows. That's a favorite of mine. I'll always enjoy those. But... Sounds like I didn't a, realize a bunch of books. Yeah, really interesting site. So, those aside, I went to boring old traditional hard books for a couple. A uh, Hundred and One Baseball Places to See Before You Strike Out by Josh Pahigian. Um, This is the second edition. I believe Josh writes this for Lions Press, with whom I have done three books. And I feel like the first edition came out at the same time that Almost Perfect came out. Maybe it was the second edition, but... 
in any case, I remember Josh's name and mine being bandied about together on a bunch of stuff, and I always thought, that'll be a fun book, and then I found a used copy for 75 cents, and lo and behold, I got to read it, and it was. Uh, you know, it's a travel book. It's, uh, it's a, a good book to pick up and put down because of 101, you know, essentially unrelated chapters that stand on their own. Uh, I'd only been to like 20 of the 101. Uh, he spreads them apart pretty well all over the country. Um, obviously, a lot of ballparks, that would be expected. Uh, but a lot of places, too, that uh, have kind of tangential reference. You're flipping through it right here. And I saw the yeah. Billy Goat Tavern in Chicago where I dragged you, and you were horrified, and thus we didn't eat there. But I wasn't, We had two kids with us, and it was like 10 o'clock at night. And, I mean, it was not the most reputable Looking place to be eating with two little kids late at no, night. No, but it, it has a place in Chicago Cubs lore and in Saturday Night Live lore. Yeah, because... I, mean, I wanted to go there. I just didn't want to take two little kids there. Yeah, well. But yeah, I took this book out of your hands while you were talking about it because I like a good travel book and this one has some really interesting places to look at. Yeah, it really did. A lot of uh, places around ballparks like Willie McCovey's Restaurant got a nice chapter. I didn't know that there was a Willie McCovey's Restaurant and I hope there still is. I would add that this copy, it's a few years old. I think a few of these places have fallen off the radar, which is why he did a second edition. But if you like to travel and you like baseball, you could certainly do a lot worse than Josh Pahigian's 101 Baseball Places to See Before You Strike Out. Yeah, that sounds really fun. I mean, I approve. And, and on behalf of Lions Press, no, I'm, I'm saying nothing on behalf <laughs> of Lions Press. I'm, I'm lucky to have had a book alongside his, and I'm glad I finally got to read his because I enjoyed it. Uh, the last one was a gift I got, and <clears throat> I've taken my time going through, but yes. It was a gift from me. It was indeed. The Dylan Tapes, <laughs> Friends, Players, and Lovers Talkin', no gee, Talkin', it's very counterculture, Early Bob Dylan by Anthony Scaduto. And the backstory here is Anthony Scaduto wrote one of the first real biographies of Bob Dylan about 1972. Scaduto passed away a couple of years ago, and his widow uh, took the interview tapes from that book and offers up transcripts from the various interviews. The last one is Bob Dylan himself, which is kind of fascinating. So I guess since he's dead, that's why she felt pretty good publishing the parts where he, like on tape, agrees that it's off the record. Right. I told you this early on. It, it, I don't think that really came up with Dylan, but some of these interview subjects will say things. They'll be like, well, of course, this is off the record, but blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, it was off the record in 1972, but now it's all laid out there. I mean, I can't think of anything that was too shocking, but, and I suppose the other thing is in Scaduto's defense, um, most of these people are dead too, so... Um, but, but it was really interesting to see what people were saying in 1970 and 1971, how the, the Bob Dylan myth had already overtaken so much and how people already were so unreliable about the details of his early days in New York and things like that. But, uh, I mean, he, he talked to everybody. He was anybody uh, from early girlfriends to fellow folk musicians to, again, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan are the last two interviews in here. So it, it was kind of a cool thing. I read that Scaduto book, again, sometime in like the late 90s, the early 2000s. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting to get the rest of the story these many years <laughs> later. 
That sounded like a good one. All right, that's all your books? That's it. Okay, here I go. I first read a book called The Messy Lives of Book People by Phaedra Patrick, and that is really a fabulous title, by the way. Um, in this book, the main character is a cleaning woman for a famous author who dies right at the beginning of the book. This is no spoiler alert. And she leaves a request um, tied up with her will, like the lawyer delivers it. I don't know about all the legalities of it, mm -hmm. but for this cleaning woman to finish her book and to like have all the money that she needs to like do all the things. She has to quit some other jobs to work on this full time. Is there a reason it's the cleaning woman? Is this just like random or is there a hidden purpose here? There are lots of different things going on in this book and I don't want to talk about any of it just okay. because it could okay. give away, like mentioning anything might give away other things. Needless to say, I did not see some of the things coming that were coming, but this, the cleaning woman had always wanted to be a writer. She had briefly discussed this with the very famous author Plus, she had been working for this woman for a long time, so they knew things of each other. Okay. Um, really interesting kind of book. I mean, based also on the idea that everybody's life is messy. It's not just book people. Um, diving into this book also reveals all the messiness and complexity that our main character has created and fallen into by inertia in her own life. So it was a really, really interesting book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Then I read Teddy Roosevelt Was a Moose by our beloved Dan Gutman. I read this with our son. Um, we found it at the library. The title was Irresistible. We had recently gotten back from Washington, D.C. He was really into reading some things about the presidents. And we read it really fast and enjoyed it so much that he checked out another book in this series called Muhammad Ali Was a Chicken, um, by, also by Dan Gutman. So these are just really fun, fact-filled books. He's written several in this series also, and it's t the structure is there are two kids who are talking back and forth to each other, kind of like trying to outdo each other with facts about whoever this main character is, and they go for really obscure, fun, interesting facts that kids would like. I think both of the books that we, Muhammad Ali and Teddy Roosevelt, began with the chapter of the boring stuff that your teacher would want you to know, like when he was born, where he lived, all that, but then they get into... Things that kids just are really interested in, like Ryan was interested in where Teddy Roosevelt liked to skinny dip. Um, mm. They were just all kinds of things. Really, really fun books. Not very far in the Muhammad Ali book yet, but I was very interested in the last chapter of the Teddy Roosevelt book where they discussed the complexity of who he was as a person. Um, like how one of his statues, I think in New York City, was getting taken down because of the racist implications of though that particular statue and how you can do so many good things in these areas of your life but be so gravely mistaken in other areas of your life and they don't attempt to tie a neat bow on it or make any grand um, proclamations about Teddy Roosevelt being good or bad you basically just end the book with the idea that he's he's a dude he's like the rest of us you know and I really thought that that was a good way to start broaching this sense of nuance with kids well, Dan, you know, signed me up for his fan club. I feel like we've uh, we've read a variety of his young adult books, and, and you know, whether it's novels or, or more straightforward biography, he really has a knack for getting into history in a very authentic and complete way. 
well, that's I'm not like boring, that, but but it's also not patronizing. Yeah, it's very I just real. really like that he. It, 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 this is not an educational feeling kind of book, but that he is leading kids to think of um, political figures and historical figures not as good guys or bad guys, but as somewhere in between, which is where the rest of us are, and then they can make their own decisions about him instead of having somebody else tell them what to think. Sure. So, good book, good book. Yeah. Then I read Flying Solo by Linda Holmes. She wrote um, a book. Oh, gosh, I don't remember the name of it. Evie Drake is in it um, several years ago. Linda Holmes runs or works on one of those, I think, NPR podcasts about reading. So these books were kind of big deals when they came out. I read Evie Drake. I thought it was fine. I liked Flying Solo better. Um, It dealt with things that a lot of people aren't writing about as much. The main character is single. She has come home after an absence of many years. She hasn't lived there. She hasn't lived there for a long time. Um, To her hometown in Maine because her great aunt, who is also single and childless, has died. And her parents don't have time to deal with the estate. She is one of like four brothers, like all of her siblings. They... Um, either don't want to deal with the estate or are busy with families of their own. And so she comes home to deal with it. And it's a really um, fun look at the way we make community, how that is your your blood relatives, your family, but it's also your friends, your people, and the non-traditional kinds of ways that people form a place for themselves in this world. Like how you don't have to be married. Um to have a partner. You don't have to be married to have your own spot and you can live a fulfilled life. And and kind of the ways that people pressure single people to fit into the boxes that they and society have created. So it's just, it, it was a really interesting book to me and I thought it was worth reading. Then I read one of my favorite books um, and I expected it to be and it was, it didn't let me down. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. This is a book that I'm going to tell you what it's about. If you know, if you've heard of it, you already know what it's about. But what it's about does not encompass this book. So it's these two friends, Sadie and Sam, who have, um, they played video games together as children. And then when they meet up together again in college, they decide to make video games together. And um, they form a company. Their games are very successful. It's not really a book about video games, though. It's a book about friendship and about creating and about play and how play and the act of creating can remake your lives and also, like, pull you into your different communities. And it's a book about forgiveness and, oh, it's just a book about anything you can think of. Um, it's growth. It starts out when they're little kids. They're, you know, probably middle-aged people by the time it's done. But it was absolutely beautifully written. I think it helps to like video games to um, read this book just because you, know, you have a little context. I'm not a big video gamer kind of person at all, but I've played them. You know, I was a big Nintendo fan when I was little, and we still play some stuff around here from time to time. Um but you don't have to be a video game person. It's not really about that. And at its heart, what it is about is is about love. It's beautiful. You read me some excerpts and uh, the stuff you shared. One thing I remember was particularly darkly hilarious. And, and there was another part where I was just like, yeah, that's really beautiful. It's funny because society likes to make video games a scapegoat, whether it's like 
Columbine kids and the violent video <laughs> games or the rootless, you know, 20 and 30 something year old men and how they waste all their time on video games. I think there's really a massive cultural misunderstanding about video games. And, and I'm glad to see somebody dedicate some time and some energy to putting some ideas out there that I think need to be thought about. Well, this one looked at video games um, a little bit differently too. This gives nothing away. It's near the beginning and it really isn't truly like it, it connected deeply to the rest of the plot. But the first game that we see Sadie make is a shooter game of Emily Dickinson poems. Like you have to shoot the right lines to put the poem together or you lose. I mean, just, who thinks of that? You know, it's, it was a really gorgeous book. Read it, read it, read it. All right, and then the next one is Two Nights in Lisbon by Chris Pavone. I don't know if I'm saying that last name right. Um, total change of direction from Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is a literary novel. And Two Nights in Lisbon is a thriller. Um, the main character wakes up in her hotel room in Lisbon to find her brand new husband gone. And um, he has been kidnapped and is being held for ransom for money that, of course, she does not have. But there is necessarily all of this intrigue and background that gets revealed over the course of the story. It was very fast-paced. It was very interesting. Um, I don't usually read thrillers, but I really liked this one. Yeah, you're branching out. Can I can I interest you in some 40-year-old books about bootleg <laughs> music? No, I heard several people say that this was really good, and I actually heard... Um, two people who I kind of follow their book reviews. One of them, as always, is Haley. We talked about her a million times. She loves this one. And then there's an Instagram uh, person. She goes by the the Book and Diner, I believe, is her handle. And she really and both of them said that they were kind of surprised at how much they liked this. And I felt the same way. All right, then I read Good Enough by Kate Bowler and Jessica Ritchie, which was forty-ish devotions for. Um, helping yourself understand that it's okay to be good enough. And I think that's really enough said about that. It was a great book. Um, each devotion has a little prayer or blessing after it and then some kind of action step that you can take. But it's predicated on the idea that you just, you don't have to save the world by yourself. You don't have to carry all of the mountains on your shoulders. We get up every day, we do our best, we let that be good enough. It's also a great topic because if some reader reads it and it's like, oh, that wasn't really my favorite, you're like, well, it was good enough, wasn't it, wasn't it? (laughs) Come on. The last book that I finished in these two two weeks is called Last Summer on State Street, and it was by Toya Wolf. This is a story told from the perspective of a 12-year-old girl, um, and it was quite literally the last summer that she spent on State Street in Chicago in the Robert Taylor housing products as they were being torn down one by one. So this is the last summer that she was there before they also tore down her building. And it was um, a moving and um, sad and sweet look at life there. Um, Shoot, whatever year that would have been. It was in the 90s when they It's part of Cabrini Green, right? I'm not sure. Okay. That name was not mentioned in the book, so. (laughs) Um, But it was just um, eye-opening for me in a lot of ways. I am not from Chicago, um, but she had a lot of Chicago details in the story. Just what it it was like to grow up in one of those housing projects. The author... um, obviously knew this very well as she also lived in the Robert Taylor housing projects in Chicago. And so she wrote this story 
From the very beginning, it talks about these four 12-year-old girls who were together that summer and how they each fell away over the course of the summer and as the main character's life totally changes. So very profound, very moving, often very difficult to read book, but I felt like a really important one, and I'm glad I read it all the way through to the end. Sure. Like I say, a varied list from you, and not that that's unusual. But it was, it was thoroughly enjoyable, and I liked what I read for these past two weeks, and I'm glad for what we get to discuss now. Our shared read was called Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything, and it's written by Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. I talked about it a little bit last time because I had finished it, but do you want to just give a quick recap? Well, these two ladies have a podcast together, Pantsuit Politics. Uh, they're both Kentuckians. Uh, the idea behind their podcast, and I hope I'm not taking too many liberties, they explain it much better than I do, but that they were two women of roughly the same age who had differing political backgrounds and kind of came at politics from different angles, but were similarly interested in promoting civil, sane, knowledgeable dialogue. And when they wrote their first book, which is called um, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, that was when they were in the heart of more the beginning stages of this podcast, mm -hmm. about the time when they still were beginning the podcast by saying, hi, I'm Beth from the right, and I'm Sarah from the left, and they really were divided. And they would take on their podcast a big issue that was in the news, and they would research it thoroughly. They would explain both sides of it. If they came to consensus, great. If not, okay, too. But the idea was to like not only have this kind of nuanced political discourse themselves, but also to model how to have that kind of discourse. Now, interestingly enough, they talk about that in this book. Over the years of doing this podcast together and working together and writing two books together, they have moved much closer together politically, mm -hmm. which is sort of what this book is about. Um, the fact that our nation, our societies, um, our families often are divided about everything from politics to faith to just anything you can think about. And we look at this moment, lots have happened. Lots of things have happened in the last 10 years sure. that have led to these differences, both on a national level and on local levels, um, within our different denominations of Christianity. Um, and, and they say, okay, so this is where we are. There's no arguing about where we are. But how do I sit down with Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving dinner and listen to him say things that I so virulently disagree with? How can I still love him? And yeah. that's basically what this book is about. And, and I'm impressed with it. I thought it was a very nuanced look. It doesn't posit any magic bullet solution, of course. Um, but I like the way that they broke it down to talk about family, to talk about friendship, to talk about... You Work, know, your, your, offices. Right. And then, like, your your spouse, your partner. Mm -hmm. um, one of the real insights I came away with is both of them have a commitment to to seeing politics more on a localized level. And, you know, it's one of those things where maybe I knew it and hadn't internalized it. But the fact that at the local level, A, is where things get done, uh, but B is where people are people. People are not cartoons. You know, they're not a soundbite that pops on MSNBC or Fox News and says something incendiary and leaves 48% of the country to be furious with them. 
Um, so that was one of the real takeaways of this book for me is to think more and pay more attention on the local level. And if you want to impact the future, if you want to bring about more civility, that's really the place to do your work. I thought that that was really important too. Um, I was really struck by the part of the book that discussed that. Um, I also really liked just their own personal examples. It's really easy to kind of get high and mighty about this topic. I've heard many, many people talk about this same topic and their answers to it seem to revolve around, well, we just need to get along. You just need to put it down. We just need to have unity. <laughs> and I'm, I've heard this until I'm sick of the word unity, you know, um, it, it doesn't mean what they think it means anymore. You there know what you I'm go. saying? Yeah. Um, because I don't think that the way for us to come back together is that I just put down my grievance and agree with whatever you say, which seems to be what people mean when they say, y'all just need to have some unity. Um, that's, that's not it at all. That's puppetry. Um, it's not any kind of civil discourse. And I like how they emphasize listening. The chapter about spouses was a really interesting one to me because Beth reveals in it that she and her husband voted totally differently in the last presidential election. And she felt that he had completely thrown away his vote. And it shook her. But the way that they managed to talk about these things and work through their political differences was a really great model for how all of us can start to do that. And so their personal examples were really, really strong. And the way that politics isn't just politics. Politics is often a proxy for what we really think about respect and what we really think about the importance of other people agreeing with us or sharing our values or not belittling our values. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of communication theory in this book, and that's a lot of what makes the practical parts of it really tick. And that came through really strongly in the chapter where Sarah discussed the Paducah school shooting. She's from Paducah. That's a big thing for her. And she was a student at the Paducah High School um, when this happened. And just, you know, all those things that you said, she had a solid personal example that really helped me see. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what these ladies do. Uh, they're really interesting. They... Uh, they're doing what I could honestly say is God's work as much as anybody involved in politics can be in that they're trying to bring about civility. They're trying to bring about reasoned, thoughtful, cogent behavior. Uh, and, and they care. They care about their audience. They care about their community. And that's really been a lot of what's made their podcast thrive. And it's what makes this book work. Yes, it's excellent. If you are interested, definitely read this book. Or their first book, um, again, the title of that one is I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. You can also check out their pol their podcast, which is called Pantsuit Politics. You can check them out on Instagram. They are very active on Instagram, and they do a lot of um, uh, adjacent things on Instagram. Beth will do an Ask Me Anything, where she'll talk about anything in the world you want to talk about um, in the very level-headed Beth kind of way that lets you know what she's going to be like on the podcast, too. They also have a Patreon they have all kinds of stuff. You should really check them out. Yep, a lot of fun. Next time around, we're going to another Kentuckian uh, novelist, Silas House, 
who wrote a book a while back that neither of us have read and both of us have wanted to read, so we're finally going to dive in. Southernmost, I believe, is the title. That's the name. I think we've read pretty much everything else, every other book he's ever written. We've missed some of the short stories and plays. Yeah, he has diversified at times, but his novels, uh, back to Clay's Quilt and Cold Tattoo, oh, Cold Tattoo. Parchment of Leaves, you know, some, some really great uh, stuff. A Kentucky writer who's naturalistic, descriptions of the land can sometimes echo the great Wendell Berry, and there's not a lot of higher praise I can give writing than that. And this is one of the rare times that we are going to be reading a book that neither of us has yet read or talked about on this podcast. So if you have read Southernmost, or if you have any other ideas for things we ought to be reading, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at pbackreaderspod. Or, or sorry, at Paperback Readers Pod, or on Twitter at Paperback Readers Pod. There you go. Got to keep all of our folks connected. It's a lot. It okay. is a lot. But hopefully, your life's a lot, and in a good way. And whatever you got going on, keep reading. <laughs> <laughs>